Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the director of Anchorman and the Big Short, Adam McKay, chats to me about his apocalyptic new comedy, Don't Look Up, and possibly gives me Meryl Streep's phone number. Actor, writer and director Will Sharp on his new movie, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. Plus, with the return of your favourite web slinger, Mark Ryle reviews Spider-Man No Way Home. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on News Talk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're feeling festive and uh, getting in the Christmas mood. Let's not talk about that other thing that's in the news and has been in the news since last March. Let's keep this a virus-free zone and uh, we'll lose ourselves in the magic of movies for an hour. Let's pretend like it's not existing. I don't mean that in a let's ignore it, but just for the purposes of this show. All right. Now, staying with festive things, I want to tell you that on Christmas Day at 11 o'clock here on News Talk, 11 o'clock in the morning, I'll be bringing you the Screen Time special where I'll be playing favourite Christmas movies, favourite Christmas music from movies and favourite Christmas TV shows and Christmas TV specials. So a very gentle way as you're opening presents or making scrambled eggs or, you know, having your first glass of wine, whatever it is you do on Christmas morning between 11 and 12. I hope you can join me for some festive fun from the movies and indeed the TV. Now, talking of festive fun, I have a lot on the show this week, but I want to quickly mention a festive movie that I finally got around to that I've been meaning to watch called Single All The Way. It's been on Netflix, I think, since the 2nd of December. And it's about a gay man who convinces his best friend to pretend to be his boyfriend when he goes home for Christmas because his mother's always trying to set him up because he's been single for a long time but when he goes home he gets up set up on a blind date by his mother and Christmas hilarity ensues or not is the case this isn't very good sorry to say and I have a high tolerance for Christmas movies I mean I will you know I suspend a lot of disbelief when it comes to a Christmas movie you're dealing with a different set of criteria so I don't think you can ever be too hard on them because it's a different animal you know but I think the problem with this is that you know they were it's rare that a gay rom-com particularly when it be a Christmas movie I'm not sure if it's ever happened or it certainly hasn't happened in the mainstream that the lead would be gay and hats off that's that's great and it should become unremarkable as years go on that it's of no consequence but I think the problem with this is that they were so keen to make a gay rom-com at Christmas that they forgot to actually write a plot that was worth anything because this is just full of Christmas movie rom-com tropes and it's like they forgot to actually tell a good story and I watched this with my wife who won't mind me saying this by her admission she has a really high tolerance for any kind of rom-com and will watch anything she didn't enjoy this so I think single all the way needs to be avoided I'm sorry to say it is on Netflix if you want to see what you thought of it now a much better movie which will be on Netflix on the 24th of December but is in cinemas from this week the 17th of December this Friday is this this is not real this is not real this is not real this isn't happening Kate uh, tell me this isn't really happening I hear there's uh, something you don't like the looks of. We discovered a very large comet. Oh, 
Good for you. It's headed directly towards Earth. This comet is what we call a planet killer. At this exact moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess? Sit tight. And then assess. The sit tight part comes first, and you got to digest it. That's the assessment period. Yeah, no, that was a clip from Don't Look Up, the new movie by the great Adam McKay, who gave us things like Anchorman and The Big Short. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio. It has a huge cast. Jennifer Lawrence is in there. And they play two scientists who basically realise that a comet is going to hit Earth pretty soon from when they discover it. And they try and convince the president, played by Meryl Streep, that she should do something about it. You also have Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry as these two kind of semi-newscasters who are interviewing the two scientists about the possible comet hitting the Earth. And it's, you know, it's a comedy, but it's about something serious. But it's classic Adam McKay in that it's a funny story about a serious topic. That's what he's been doing later in his life. I really enjoyed it. Adam McKay is, you know, the man who gave us Anchorman. He had a long relationship with Will Ferrell. That hasn't quite worked out. They've parted ways, but they gave us a hell of a lot of movies along the way, like Step Brothers and Talladega Nights. But he also did movies, directed and wrote the, or certainly wrote the screenplay for The Big Short. He did Vice, that great movie about Dick Cheney. He's a serious filmmaker, but a very funny one as well. And I was dying to talk to him. So I got to chat to him earlier in the week about... Don't Look Up, and also about Anchorman, and all sorts of things. He also executive produced Succession. We didn't have time to get into that. Anyway, take a listen to this. So, you know, Adam, you know, when rock stars say they're going to make a concept album, people go, oh, no, please don't. And in, a <laughs> weird, in a weird kind of way, when directors go, I'm going to make a movie about a thing, I tend to go, oh, no, please don't. But I'm delighted to say this is a movie, I suppose, about catastrophe and climate change and it's great and it's really funny but did you have any reservations about you know making an issue movie yeah i mean that was kind of the trick was how do you you know i mean i like starting coming up with ideas for movies with something i want to talk about or i'm interested with and the big question is tonally how do you do it and the breakthrough on this movie was the idea of making it a big laugh out loud comedy um, and, and I thought that was kind of perfect. I, I just felt like we all haven't laughed with a movie comedy in quite a while. I can't mm. remember the last one. And I thought, well, what better thing to laugh at than how insane the world has been for the past 10, 15 years. I think that's something we can all agree on uh, across the political, religious, you know, uh, spectrum uh, and and I thought it could be really cool for people to laugh uh, mm. together about something we can all agree on. Yeah, well, it, it's certainly full of laughs. Tell me this, the, the characters played by Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett are, are just brilliant it, and they're so funny. But I guess on a deeper level, is that the way you see mainstream American media? And I should say for listeners who haven't seen the movie, they play the host of the, the Daily Rip, I think it is. And really... They're only interested in scandal and no bad news. And they're very partisan. Is that, I know, I know it's comedy and all, but you're being clearly very satirical. Yeah, I, I think what happened in the US and you see it sometimes, you know, to varying degrees around the world. Uh, fortunately here in Ireland, it's not as bad, but is that all of the news became about ratings and advertising sales. And that's dangerous because 
I have friends who work in broadcast news and they'll tell you if they bring up the climate crisis, ratings go down. And I've just said, well, you still have to do it. And my friends have said, well, easy for you to say, I have to keep my job. And, uh, you know, Michael Lewis always talks about uh, broken incentives. And I think that's to some degree what's happened with our media, that it's about ratings and, and clicks and views and advertising. And there has to be some degree to which we just need to hear certain information. Yeah. And from your movie, I gather you think that's pretty much across the board, that it's not just the Fox News of the world who are engaged in that, but it's also, you know, papers of some note on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's been incredible. It's been 10, 20 years since we've known that this is empirically 100 percent happening. The livable atmosphere is collapsing and I've just never seen the tone of the coverage shift. Uh, to what it should be, which is, you know, a combination of World War II coverage and the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's how huge this is. It's the biggest threat to human life in in history, uh, biggest threat to life in 65 million years. So uh, it's been very odd to see our news sort of treat this as a fifth story and something that occasionally gets talked about. Um, you know, and, and I respect reporters who work hard and I know they're in a tough spot with traditional newspapers where their sales are down and, and it's a very hard scrabble kind of situation. But at the same time, at a certain point, you just got to go all in and say, this is the story. And it's just been remarkable to not see that happen. Yeah. And just back to the movie and particularly the casting, and it is a stellar lineup. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, for aspiring filmmakers there, (laughs) how do you get uh, Meryl Streep into your movie to play the president? I mean, did you just ask and she said yes? Was it as simple as that or was it five years in the planning or whatever? Well, I'm going to give out her phone number. (laughs) She called 416. No. yeah, I, I mean, everyone wants to cast Meryl Streep. She's arguably the greatest actor in film history. Um, and we got lucky on this one. We sent her the script. Uh, I wasn't expecting a yes because it's Meryl Streep, but she had the time in her schedule and she really responded to the script. And that was it. Uh, and it, it's a, an awfully great phone call to get when you're a director. And Meryl Streep has said yes. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is is great in it, as is Jennifer Lawrence. There's a moment, and I don't want to give spoilers, but he 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 has a network moment, and and film buffs will know what we mean. He's not going to take it anymore, basically live on American TV. And I read last night, and I just want to check this: that Network might be your favorite film of all time. Yeah, I mean, it might be. It, it's always a little ridiculous to say there's one movie that's your all-time favorite, but yeah. it is It is one that I'm in awe of. Uh, I have watched it a dozen times. I do think it, it's somewhat perfection. Um, the funny thing is the speech didn't come from Network. We, uh, we started talking about that moment and Leo really wanted to uncork a speech. And it was one of those things where I, I didn't realize uh, for a little while, oh, they're they're on a TV set. And if you give a speech on a TV set, it looks like network. Um, mm. But we just decided to let it fly. 
Yeah. Okay. You know, it's funny you say it's kind of a ridiculous question. Every week on this radio show, I talk to someone famous about their favorite movie. So I might start using you as the jingle for that, that it's a ridiculous uh, question. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Like, I do, no of way. course. Yeah. But I, yeah. by the way, I'll play the top 10 movies of my life game all day long. It's very yeah. fun. By any chance, if you had to put, I, I don't want to go off topic here, but network, if you had to put two others in there in terms of your favorite movies of all time, gun to your head, what would you throw in as two and three? Uh, I would probably throw Blue Velvet and let me think. Um, uh, uh, I might do Office Space. Oh, wow. uh, those might be the three. I'm just trying to pick movies that I've seen a dozen times that really meant a lot to me. And those, you know, Network, Blue Velvet, Office Space, those are movies I've watched a million times. I love The Man Who Would Be King. I love uh, Kung Fu, Hustle, obviously Goodfellas, I've seen a million times. You know, it'd be a, a list like that. Yeah, it sounds good to me. You know, there's a moment when you talk to directors and actors, I call the groan moment where they go, oh, not this again. Uh, so forgive me, but I just, I can't move on and not do it. So really quickly, why do you think Anchorman is still such an adored movie? And you can tell me in 30 seconds and then we'll move on. Cause I know you've probably uh, never done an interview where it hasn't come up. So I'm no, sorry. I, I don't, I don't mind that at all. I, I love that movie. That's the very first movie I directed. Yeah. And that was a case where we, you know, we had incredible actors. The casting on that was just through the roof. Everyone was so funny. We improvised like crazy. And I think a lot of the energy of that movie was that, you know, we had been dying to make a movie. It, it took quite a while to get Anchorman made. So when we finally got uh, the big kids toys, you know, when we finally got the cameras and the crew, we were just giddy. And uh, I think what you see in that movie is all that energy of four or five years of trying to make that movie. So in a way, it was so successful because of your youthful enthusiasm in a way. You got the keys to the candy shop. Yeah. And also being told no for quite a bit. I mean, yeah. no one would make that movie. We took it everywhere around Los Angeles and every production and financing company and studio said no to it. Um, and we had given up on it. Uh, and it was only after uh, Will hit in old school that suddenly we got some calls from places that wanted to do it. So we just couldn't have been more excited. Yeah. And listen, staying with comedies, and I know you've addressed this a few times, but in terms of where we're at 2021, now your career has changed a bit and you've gone to, you know, people call it more serious fare, although I, I you know, I think it's satire and there's, and especially with Don't Look Up, it's, it's, there's, it's, it's, it's a comedy, uh, but, you know, making comedies is a trickier business now for, for all sorts of reasons because of where we're at in the world. And rightly so, all sorts of things. You know this better than I do. But do you, you know, for young comedy writers coming up, do, do you think they have a hard time now trying to be funny? Because there is a sense of what can I make jokes about anymore? Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think it has more to do with the fact that we're just in a period of seismic change. Mm -hmm. I think the world is changing rapidly and in huge ways that we're still catching up to. And I think the way comedy works is there has to be at least a little bit of common ground with your audience to get laughs. And I just think right now we're not sure what that common ground is. 
So in the case of this movie, I, I tried to make the common ground, no matter who you voted for, no matter what your political persuasion or whatever, I think we can all agree the world is full on bonkers right now. And it seems to work. I mean, we did the, the screenings and we noticed that people on the right wing, on the left wing could all laugh at the idea mm -hmm of how mad the world is. So I think that'll start to come out of the wash. I think that has to do more with the world is just changing fast and where okay. is the world right now? Yeah, okay, well, that's a very good handle on things. And listen, let me ask you finally, you mentioned the Irish media. So I should point out to listeners, to the best of my knowledge, you're talking to me from a lakeshore somewhere north in the country. You part-time reside in Ireland or you certainly have a holiday home here, right? We, we do. I'm actually in Dublin right oh. now, but I do have a lake house uh, outside Dublin that I love. It's, it, it's a place I go to write. Okay. And I've, I've been coming to Ireland for 25 years. I have a bunch of friends here and I just love the country. So uh, we eventually did buy a lake house. Well, you're about to give out Meryl Streep's number. So if you want to give us out the lake house address, that would that would also help. So I mean, I, I'd rather not, but <laughs> you seem like a nice guy. So it's 1349 Crosscut <laughs> Lane. And the gate code is 365 pound. Fantastic. Well, listen, <laughs> put the kettle on. I should remind listeners that Don't Look Up is in cinemas from this Friday, the 17th of December. It will be on Netflix on the 24th of December. It is a fantastic movie. It should be a, no surprise because Adam McKay is a wonderful director. Thank you so much for talking to me, Adam. My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. The great Adam McKay there giving out his uh, address and all sorts of stuff. Cool guy. I was delighted to talk to Adam McKay. Up next, the return of Spider-Man. Mark Royal gives us his take on Spider-Man No Way Home. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new releases and the biggest of them undoubtedly, if not one of the biggest movies of the year, is Spider-Man No Way Home. We're also going to be looking at a much different movie called The Lost Daughter, which is in cinemas and also on Netflix later in the month. Mark Ryle, our very own web slinger, is here. Oh, a slinger of cinematic webs, which he catches listeners in every week. Hello, Mark. A slinger of something, starting yes. with an S. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, again, this is happening more often. You and I were in the cinema together watching we, this. Yeah, and it was a regular screening. It wasn't a, a press show with the with the twenty bitter men and two women that are usually <laughs> at press shows. It was a, a regular screening with humans in it, and um, it has to. I have to say, the kids in the audience just loved this and they were making all the right noises and, and they recognized characters and references that I didn't, but that's, that's fair enough. They were also applauding, which I thought was interesting at one point, you know? Yeah, I know. I mean, that, that goes to show. Yeah, it does. So listen, Spider-Man No Way Home, tell us quickly what's going on in it. Okay, well, No Way Home takes up immediately after the events of uh, Far From Home, the movie from, I think it was two years back, um, which I'm struggling to remember anything about now, apart from the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal was in it with a goldfish bowl on his head. But what is apparent at the beginning of this one is that the world now knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Um, so not only is his life destroyed, but so are the lives of everyone close to him, including his girlfriend MJ and his best friend Ned. 
And because of this newfound infamy, all three of their college applications come back with letters of refusal. So Peter goes to Doctor Strange and asks him to cast some spell that will make the world forget that he is Spider-Man. And this spell goes wrong and opens up cracks in reality where these characters from other uh, alternative universes start coming through. And that's all I'm going to say about the, the story. Yes, and I think it's good to stop there because there's been stuff leaked online. But the thing about this movie is there is a lot of other characters in it. We don't want to say who, but, yeah. and I can say this without spoiling it, but about an hour of the way through, there is a wonderful twist. Uh, mm. A twist that I dare say you don't usually see in Marvel movies. Uh, a twist that made you sit up, or certainly made me sit up and go, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. So... And Tom Holland as Peter Parker and Spider-Man, I thought was pretty good. Zendaya playing his girlfriend, I thought was pretty good. It kind of mm. uh, world worldly innocence or something about her. I thought yeah. the cast was pretty good all in all. It is. I mean, it's great. I won't say anything apart from that there are actors in the movie. <laughs> um, He's really keen not to spoil it on people. <laughs> uh, I would describe this as Abba Gold or Queen's Greatest Tits. <laughs> because, because explain the analogy because the script that it's written by chris mckenna and eric summers it somehow manages to bring together every spider-man movie from the last 20 odd years and then the returning director john watts somehow manages to pull all of that off and the whole thing it's incredibly ambitious and it is quite extraordinary that it all works mm. It was a huge amount of fun, I thought. I really wasn't in the mood to see it. There have been nine, to my reckoning, standalone Spider-Man movies in the last few years. Oh, actually, nine if you count the uh, the animated Into the Spider-Verse. Into the Spider-Verse. Well, I was. I know my Spidey stuff, man. But uh, so, and a lot of them were very diminishing returns. You know, I I do like the initial ones with Tobey Maguire. But anyway, and I was really surprised by this. I thought it it, it never relented. It held my attention the whole way. The kids in the audience kind of helped because they they clapped. You could see the enthusiasm. I don't think it's a bad thing occasionally to go to a movie with kind of younger people like that. And you see you might be aimed at. But at the same same time you know it's it's aimed at a general audience and it held my attention the whole way through and it didn't have some of the more daft let's call the marvelisms that can ruin some of these movies i found i don't know how you felt yeah 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 I, often these these spider-man movies they've they've kind of suffered from having too much stuff thrown into the past mm. the, the third uh, sam raimi movie in particular had too many villains in the mix and mm. uh, the the problems with tom holland's previous two movies for me, is that Marvel Studios didn't really have the confidence to let Spider-Man be the main character in his own yeah. movie because yeah. you had Robert Downey Jr. or it, you, it was you've constantly beaten your end head with the Avengers stick or there was this or the link to some other movie that was coming out, um, and No Way Home falls into all of those same traps and probably to an even greater extent. But for for some inexplicable reason, it all just works. It's all come together really well, and the whole thing is just a really good it's a it's a great ending to tom holland's trilogy mm, yeah no i completely agree with you and even though there are a myriad of characters tom holland is still front and center uh despite all the, the greatest hits characters in there as well so i'm glad you found it as kind of pleasing as i did what would you say stars wise uh oh, oh yeah okay i'm gonna give it uh, a four i think it's, it's yeah. over, overly ambitious but it, it really does stick the landing i i feel like i jumped the runway there you wanted to say more because you're like oh oh we're getting to stars now are we so is, is it something else you yeah. want to say did you have a whole other thing to say oh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, tons more. Yeah, but if you, I like, we can end it there if you want, or we can delve a bit deeper. Well, what? Give me, give me one other place you just wanted to delve. Talk, talk just a bit about the the final act. I'm always giving out about the the Marvel yes. inability to pull off a final act. Um, it's it's usually just spectacle for spectacle's sake, yes. and you leave it all in the cinema. And it's completely forgotten about as soon as you leave. But this one ha- is different. It, it has a final act that that works and it feels very much earned. And I could tell what was happening to who and why. And it's basically kind of all comes down to two guys beating seven bells out of each other. But it's it's also got this, there's a, there's a, a ton of emotional weight. Mm. Um, and it's a very powerful and pleasant viewing experience for me. And as the end of a trilogy, it, I think it does everything right. And it's it's nothing less than what Tom Holland deserves because he has been very, very good in the role. Um, I also thought that the, 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 the chemistry was missing between Holland and Zendaya in the previous two movies, but it, it's certainly here. Um, yeah. Maybe third time's a charm. Yeah, indeed. And uh, you may be aware they're dating in real life. I was not, but maybe I'm not reading the same websites as you. Are. I, I guess not. I guess not. I got that in Heat Magazine. Does Heat Magazine even exist anymore? I don't know. I don't let's think not, it let's does. not get sued again. Uh, so I let you delve deeper. Uh, you said four stars. I'm going to give it four as well. It was a really pleasant, just good old fashioned suspend disbelief movie with a lot of heart. I really enjoyed it. I'm yeah. giving it a four. Mark's giving it a four. Spider Man. No Way Home, which is on general release since Wednesday of this week, I think it is. And me and Mark really, really enjoyed it. And if you think you might be tired of the whole Marvel thing, well, think again or certainly go and see this. Because And here, here's a good thing I could say about it. I want to bring my nine-year-old Will to see it. And, uh, you know, sometimes that can be a drag if you've already seen a movie. But, you know, the thoughts of going to see this again, I'm fine with. I'm looking forward to it. So, so that's a good sign, you know. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. Now... Uh, something very different is a new cinema release as well from this week, 17th of December, The Lost Daughter, starring Olivia Coleman and directed the directorial debut, if I'm not mistaken, of Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's going to be on Netflix from the 31st of December. I didn't get around to watching this, unfortunately, Mark. I had a busy week. I know I make that excuse every week, but it is true. Uh, Maybe I just need a time manager. But thankfully, you've done the heavy lifting on this one. I have. I think you would enjoy it, though, when you get around to watching it. It's, yeah, okay, um, don't rub it in. I said I was busy. <laughs> it's based upon the novel um, by Alina Ferrante from uh, back in 2008. Um, the Lost Daughter is, it is Maggie uh, Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, and it is uh, a remarkably confident and self-assured one. Um, Olivia Coleman is playing Lida, and she is a professor of Italian literature on holiday by herself in Greece. And she's doing a bit of research and she's doing a bit of rest and re- recreation. Um, she she finds this quiet, secluded beach, um, but her enjoyment is is ruined by the arrival of this group of large extended family of uh, obnoxious, vaguely threatening and possibly criminal uh, blow-ins from New York. And uh, Leda becomes fascinated with the this mob wife who's played by Dakota Johnson. And while she's watching Johnson trying to deal with her, her small daughter, she starts crying. And then we gradually discover why um, the sight of a mother interacting with her child upsets her and why Leda's behavior is so um, erratic and hard to read. Um, I think The Lost Daughter is one of those movies where you are constantly waiting for something to go badly wrong. Mm-hmm. And the longer the bad thing is offset, the more uptight you get waiting for that thing to happen. It's a bit like waiting to go into the dentist for some root canal work. 
um, it is quite a stressful experience. And the, when the, the, those gang of vulgar New Yorkers, they kind of warm up to Coleman after Dakota Johnson's daughter goes missing and then Coleman finds the daughter. So they kind of, they warm to her and they're, they're very, um, you know, they're, they're very thankful that they, that she found the daughter, but there is, there's this edge to these interactions that always kind of threatens to go the wrong way. So you're constantly on edge watching it. Okay. And Coleman has a past of sorts that is slowly revealed, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, and it goes without saying that she's tremendous. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? I mean, we just assume she's going to be great in everything. I know. I can't recall any any time where she wasn't tremendous. Um, She's one of the best actors who's working at the moment. I I put her in the same league as Frances McDormand for me. But um, her character, her behavior is very, very unsettling. You know, one minute she's all pleasant and and chipper, and the next she's very cold and slightly aggressive. Mm -hmm. And Jessie Buckley is playing... um, the younger version of her character, she okay. and she, she does a, a really great job. Um, she plays her through flashbacks, and you could say that Buckley has the the harder job here because not only does she have to convey a younger version of Coleman, but she is also at that time in her life where she's struggling with young motherhood and balancing a career, and she's drowning. And it's in these flashbacks where we learn why the elder character is the way she is. I suppose you could say that Buckley sets up the payoff for Coleman. Okay, yeah. And uh, we should also say Jessie Buckley is a great Irish actress who uh, has been in a lot of great things and has miles to go yet. And it's going to be fascinating to see what she does. So are you giving this a big thumbs up? It sounds like you are. I am. I'm giving a big thumbs up. Now, a couple of um, just a few small things. It could be my own stupidity. It probably is. But there are a couple of narrative threads that didn't quite make sense to me. But I was willing to put that down to, you know, Coleman's oddness as a character. Mm -hmm. And also the resolution is very slightly unsatisfying. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because it's 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 very it's an incredibly compelling uh, character study. And naturally, Coleman is tremendous. Yeah. You know, from your own life, Mark, not all narratives come together, you know? I wish they would. <laughs> yes. So what would just you say? Once, just <laughs> once. <laughs> what would you say stars wise for this? I'm giving it a four. I really liked it a lot. Okay. So that's two fours this week. One for The Lost Daughter, which is in cinemas. It will be on Netflix on the 31st of December. And also four for No Way Home. Spider-Man No Way Home, I should say. The previous one was called Spider-Man Homecoming, wasn't it? No, that was the first one. The last one was called, I think, Far From Home. Okay. A lot of homes. A lot of homes. He can't make it home. Homeward Bound. Other such things. Okay. So a good week uh, for movies. I'm going <laughs> in the cinema, four stars for both Spider-Man No Way Home and The Lost Daughter, both in cinemas, although The Lost Daughter will be on Netflix. Mark, it's that time of the year where I get to thank you for your service all year long and wish you a very happy Christmas. Same to you, John. Another year, huh? Huh? What? Huh? Let's not get into that now. There goes another year. Good luck. All right, thanks. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now opening on New Year's Day in Irish cinemas is The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Louis Wayne who is a real life character who was famous for his playful, sometimes psychedelic pictures of cats. He painted cats. And this story tells us all about his life 
He moves from the 1800s through to the 1930s. We follow his incredible adventures. He was kind of an unsung hero who was misunderstood, I suppose. He may have had some issues that were undiagnosed at the time. He was a ferociously talented character, an unusual guy. The movie traces also his kind of electrical fascination with the world. He thought the world was kind of controlled by hidden electricities. And he thought by understanding electricities, understanding these electricities, he'd understand his own life and also his own profound love that he had for his wife, Emily Richardson, who's played brilliantly in this by the great Claire Foy. Benedict Cumberbatch plays the aforementioned Louis Wayne. You're tired of me talking about uh, Benedict Cumberbatch on the show because I interviewed him twice this year I'm a massive fan of his he he can do anything if you've watched The Power of the Dog on Netflix you'll know that in this he is joyful he is quirky he's sad he's profound it's another brilliant performance News Talk listeners on this show got a chance to go to a screening a couple of weeks ago and we got great reports back from it. So it is a fine movie. Now it's directed by a young man called William Sharp. Will Sharp is his actual name. Much like my own son. Will is his name as opposed to William. Hi Will. And uh, Will's probably best known for directing a brilliant Channel 4 show. It was called Flowers. He was also in it. He wrote it as well as directing. It's a dark comedy drama. You may have seen all about the eccentric members of a family called the Flowers family. And they navigate their lives together and their own inner demons. He played a young illustrator in it. Will Sharp is Japanese born. He moved to England when he was eight, I think it was. Fascinating guy. He has a show on TV at the moment now called Landscapers, which you may have seen on Sky, starring Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis. I haven't watched it. I was due to talk to them. And it didn't happen. It happens. It's the nature of the business. But I had the blues, so I, I, I couldn't bring myself to watch the show after my interview didn't happen. I hear it's very good. Anyway, Will Sharp directed Landscapers as well. But more importantly for our purposes, he directed The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, and I chatted to him about it earlier. Incidentally, we had a screening of this for a couple of uh, listeners to the show last week, and they all loved it. You'd be pleased to hear. So oh, I loved it as well. But just so you know, the feedback so far from the 10 people who went to it was very good. <laughs> so listen, you know, someone said once there are countless stories. It's just a question of the ones we want to actually tell. So how did you decide that you wanted to tell the story of this guy, Louis Wayne, who, to my shame, I'd never even heard of? Um. Well, the original script was written by someone called Simon Stevenson, mm -hmm. uh, and the project was sent to me by Sunny March, uh, which is Benedict Cumberbatch's production company. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, like you, like I would imagine most of the audiences, as soon as I saw Louis Wayne's cat pictures, they seemed very familiar to me. I was sure that I'd seen them somewhere before, but I couldn't tell you where, but I hadn't mm -hmm. heard of him by name and I didn't know anything about his life story. Um, I think the first thing that sort of caught my attention was how on the surface of it, you know, he was creating these very playful, innocent tableau of cats doing often quite human things, quite silly things like playing tennis or gambling or you yeah. know, <laughs> hanging out in a bar. Yeah. But then occasionally there'd be an inscription or some detail um, that betrayed this kind of underlying vulnerability. Um, and the more I read about his life, the more I admired him. And I felt like he was somebody who led a truly remarkable life. Um, and I found him to be an inspiring figure. Yeah. Before I went into it, I, you know, you have a certain idea what it's going to be about. 
and I was, and not to give a spoiler, but I was surprised by, I suppose, how much pathos and sadness there is in the life as well as the jolly electrical stuff as well. Was that, I guess that's an appeal to you as a storyteller that it was so up and down. It was a roller coaster life that had a deep amount of sadness in it. Well, I think, as I say, like I found him to be a personally quite formidable and inspiring. I, I, mm. I, I felt like he had led a heroic life, I guess. Mm, that's true. Um, yeah. And I felt like I wanted the movie to feel like a life and to feel like his life and, and mm. my experience as best as we could imagine it. We wanted this to be, you know, an empathetic retelling of that story. Um, but I think my overall experience of reading about him was that I felt ultimately uplifted by his story. I felt like absolutely he did live through multiple challenges, uh, you know, personal challenges, um, sometimes just living through a difficult period uh, mm. in history, which I think is something, you know, that arguably we can all relate to at the moment. Um, As we talk on but, Zoom. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess like, you know, there's a mo towards the end of his life, I felt like he was always still able somehow to produce uh, work that had a sense of humour or at the very mm. least was, you know, delighted in colour and pattern and some of his sort of landscapes, he's famous for his cat pictures, but some of his landscapes, I think, um, are really kind of electric, for want of a better word, mm. and beautiful. And there are anecdotal stories about how, you know, even in the psychiatric hospitals that he frequented towards the end of his life, you know, he was always trying to find a wall or a large mirror, you know, to paint a Christmas mural on. Or, okay. And so he was somebody who even when he was living through dark times himself, seemed to be able to bring some kind of light to others. Yeah. Um, and that was something that uh, I really admired him for too, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. and I don't want to give listeners, you know, a, a misnomer or whatever. It's it's very funny as well. And there's a beautiful love story at its heart as well. So it's, it's, important, to, it's important to say that, you know, I was thinking of uh, that famous well maybe not famous but in sex in the city where the guy turns to miranda and says cat people all freaks i'm just wondering cats are, are you a big cat guy i don't know if i'm a big are cat they an guy? animal of have, choice for you they are we've got two cats here uh dora and maud mm. um and i think they were often quite suspicious of me when i <laughs> was uh shooting louis wayne they could tell i'd been hanging out with any number of other cats <laughs> Um, but I think it's interesting what you say about that sort of short, you know, what cat people, what that has come to conjure as an image. Yeah. And I think, you know, Louis Wayne is somebody who I think, you know, the reductive short version of, of trying to sort of get to know him is, oh, he's somebody who spent most of his life drawing and painting cats. Um, and he also ended up in a psychiatric hospital why do you think that is? And many people might be quick to conclude, well, that's yeah. just because he was an oddball, you know, simple as. But I think for us, you know, I really wanted to understand him, uh, you know, alongside Benedict and try to get under his skin, understand his psychology. He was someone who in his day was uh, diagnosed as a schizophrenic, but since then that diagnosis has been challenged. Some mm -hmm. have said maybe it was a kind of Asperger's, maybe it was a kind of bipolar. Others think simply that it could have been toxoplasmosis from spending so much time around cats. Wow. Um, but I think, you know, there is a very 
true and real journey to him becoming the guy who draws cats you know the, mm, the, the love story between him and his wife Emily played by Claire Foy and you know that beautiful chemistry between them that is at the heart of how his destiny was handed to him and you know they really did have some difficult uh, weeks you know challenges that they shared um, and they adopted a kitten uh, during that time and this is a you know all true that this mm -hmm. kitten grew into a cat and brought them much comfort and warmth mm. in these difficult months. And that's how he became the guy who drew cats. So I guess I always thought of this as, you know, first and foremost, a human story, mm -hmm. uh, more than a kind of, uh, you know, interested in him as a human being, I suppose, more than him as a historical figure and almost, yeah. you know, only really trying to understand the person behind the art, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have spoken to Benedict Cumberbatch twice this year, once for the Mauritanium and yeah. most recently for the Power of Dog. And then a week after I saw the Power of Dog, Power of the Dog, I saw him in this. And, you know, he's not here, so I'm not blowing smoke up his ass, but he's like Robert De Niro at the moment in that he seems he can do anything. Like he's going to be in playing Doctor Strange in a few weeks in a Spider-Man movie. I know yeah. he came to you with it, but it's unimaginable anyone else doing it. I guess that's a sign of a great actor. So I presume you were always on board with him playing Louis Wayne from the start because it was pretty much his idea. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, of course that was part of the attraction was to have the opportunity to work with him. But, you know, because we had made this decision to try to tell the story, I guess because... I felt like my appreciation of Louis Wayne was cumulative. So the more I learned mm. about him, the more nuance I thought that we got and the deeper our love for him grew, I suppose. And so that meant that we needed an actor, first of all, who could transform themselves physically. Uh, and Bennett, I was always blown away with how see, like, seemingly easily Benedict could sort of show up on the set as a one day as a 20 something year old man. And then the next day as a 70 something year old man. And, uh, could find his flow very quickly um, and you know we had a good you know period of rehearsal together before introducing the other cast where we would think about I think he's a very physical actor thinking about how does Louis Wayne walk how does he talk how does his posture change depending on the social environment yeah. and the context of the scene and even thinking about how does Louis Wayne dance because there were some fun anecdotes about how in the sort of warehouses of London where artists would have impromptu parties, Louis Wayne was sort of known to improvise sort of ditties on the piano, even though he couldn't really play the piano and make up strange, I think jerky dances or something was the phrase. So trying to imagine what that might have been like. Um, but he's so committed, Benedict. Mm. And he was, you know, always very interested, I found, and respectful and always wanted to sort of uh, invest in whatever our vision as a crew was for the scene yeah. and to understand it. And so, yeah, it was really a wonderful collaboration, actually. And staying with collaborations, I'm one of those people who thinks that anything from a book to a dinner party to a film is improved by Nick Cave showing up. Uh, and I don't <laughs> want to give a spoiler, but he's in it, which I was delighted to see. How did that come about, if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, Nick Cave is a collector of Louis Wayne. Um, he is a fan of Louis Wayne himself uh, and his role in the film, I guess, he plays somebody who in a very short space of time, we need to understand that it's a big deal that he is involved in the thing that he's involved in. And so we wanted the audience to be able to share in the thrill 
uh, mm. that Louis is feeling in that moment. Uh, and so, you know, we wrote to him and explained what we were doing and why we thought he would be perfect for this. Um, and I was incredibly grateful and excited that he was up for it. Yeah, yeah, great. Listen, I wanted to just ask you, there's a, I know there's another TV show happening around now called Landscapers, but I haven't seen it, so I, I, I can't talk to you about it because I don't want to lie to you and tell you how wonderful it was if I haven't watched it. However, I have watched Flowers and okay. I adored that show. Uh, I really did. And, you know, it seems to me in the age of, you know, they use that phrase dramedy uh, and maybe it sounds a bit pretentious, but I do think your show comes really close to that. I just, it was wonderfully... Oh, it, it gets you. And it's also really funny. I, I just don't think it got the love it deserved. You know, it's not mentioned as much as it should be. And I'm wondering what's your thoughts on that show now? And I'm not saying you should be disappointed with your action because I know it got rave reviews, but I think it, it should be more known about because it's a super show. I know it was only two series, but it really is wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I mean, I'm very proud of that show. And I guess, I mean, I feel like everybody, all of us who worked on it, it was a real... Uh, it was a real family, I guess, uh, of a sort. And mm. I don't know, I mean, um, I don't know if it's underwatched or not. Uh, I'm not the best judge <laughs> that's, of that. That's my take on it. I guess I just, it should be better known is what I'm saying, you know? I, I mean, I, I, I guess then... Um, please recommend it yeah i guess oh well i have listen, i have you know. yeah, yeah you have, uh, I mean, if i'll do it more and yeah and it's on netflix i think at the moment as well i think so. it is yeah. yeah i mean it was a very per every project is a personal project yeah uh, in the end and louis wayne and landscapers but i both projects i put you know a lot of myself into and i felt like we all worked together uh, and i'm very proud of how cast and crew production everybody worked together on those um projects um but you know flowers is is to date probably the most personal project mm. um and there was a lot that i didn't realize i needed to get off my chest i suppose whether it mm -hmm. be about growing up in japan and moving to england being mixed race or you know about uh, struggles with mental illness um mm -hmm. but i think you know uh i guess i'm always happy uh when people sort of rediscover it or discover it anew and it um so yeah if you haven't seen it uh, please watch it <laughs> here here I, yeah I, I, I'll, I'll second that and listen finally then I, I read in the guardian i thought it was a very amusing bit and you know that's the paper record they would never misquote anybody <laughs> but when you toyed or when you did a little stand-up comedy stand-up gigs in your earlier days you read that you you did this thing apparently where you would put on an american accent uh, and I just thought that seemed like a really sweet kind of, I don't know, maybe defense mechanism or something like that. Why used you put on an American accent? I think it was a defense mechanism because I, I guess, I suppose what I meant by that was I'd arrive on the stage and I'd, and I'd feel slightly nervous. And so then I would need to adopt a nervous persona and sort of follow through with it. So then okay. even if I was eight, nine minutes in and kind of found my flow and it's going okay, I had to just keep stay in that zone and sometimes that would involve or actually more often than not it started to involve doing i don't know if it was a good american accent or not but um an american accent i did when i was very little i had kind of an american accent because i went to an international school mm -hmm. uh in tokyo and then you know over time yeah uh, that's gone clearly <laughs> indeed indeed but look you sound pretty good usually these things are seven minutes and the nice people at studio canal gave me 15 so i don't want to take the proverbial and run over so the electrical <laughs> life of louis wayne's fantastic movie so i will be recommending that as highly as flowers and lovely to talk to you today will
Thanks so much, John. Take Cheers. care. Every cat fancier knows Puss loves nothing more than to sit on a piece of brown paper. Well, cats are acutely aware of the dangers of electrical rheumatism. And, of course, if you ever need to punish a cat, you could just crumple the paper to make the sound of thunder. Do cats get rheumatism? Oh, yes, of course, Miss Simmons. Mr. Wing, we have been showing your cat pictures to our staff. They've been laughing, they've been <laughs> smiling. Tell them, Alicia, tell them I'm not lying. One of our typists, she took some of your pictures home to her kids and she said that they were running about on their hands and knees pretending to be cats. Pretending <laughs> <laughs> to be cats, how cute. <laughs> and, and, and asking to have cats for their birthday. We're gonna get you out there, you're a personality. Wouldn't you say, Alicia, honey? You're Mr. Cat. You're Cat Man. Cat Man. Huh? Cat Man. Cat Man. A clip there from The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, which is in cinemas from New Year's Day in Ireland. And you heard me there talking to its director and uh, co-writer of the screenplay, Will Sharp. That is it for this week. I will be back Christmas Day for a very special Screen Time special at 11 o'clock, where I'll be bringing you some festive music, some festive film clips and TV clips and all sorts of festive stuff on the big box and the small box and some of the music that's contained in some of those great Christmas movies and TV shows. But that is it for this week. If I don't talk to you Christmas Day, let me wish you all a very happy Christmas. I want to thank Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show again this week. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app and it's on the radio every Saturday here on News Talk at 6pm. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, enjoy Christmas week, and I'll talk to you down the road.